we want to deliver a message to the younger generation, yeah. like be these mentors, these elders that have figured it out that you don't need to do things in a traditional way. You know, if those traditional models were that good in psychotherapy and psychology, they wouldn't be around anymore because they would have healed the previous generation. So what I want is for people or men, women in their 18, 20, thinking that they need to go that path, realizing there's another path. So I kind of write and teach for the younger version of me wishing I had me at that age. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're very similar in, in that space, which is great. Yeah, yeah, that resonates with me a lot. I wonder if what we look at perhaps being the wrong model or the wrong approach might have been necessary to get to where we're at now, if that makes sense, like a constant evolution. What are your thoughts Definitely. on that? Having mistakes actually being necessary to make the correct decision. Yeah, excellent point. You know, especially for entrepreneurs, one of the, if not the greatest fear is of failure. But yeah. fear, failure and success are two sides of the same coin. Mm. You know, you cannot have success without failure. And it's usually, you're probably going to have 80% failure for 20% success. You know, that's the Pareto principle, 80-20. Okay. But I look at it from this point is failure is just succeeding how not to do things. And this is inherently tied in with the nature of the human condition from the egoic perspective, the ego perspective. The ego is everything we're not. So we actually, rather than trying to become something, we have to unbecome everything that we've been taught in order to become who we already are underneath that. So failure and success is the same as operating in the human psyche. Everything we're not has to be unraveled and dissolved and the revelation of who we are comes forward. That's the success, but it's emergent. It just happens. There's not something that you're going to go and, you know, break the walls down and figure out and be, sorry, do to become that. You have to unbecome what you think you are to become who you already are that's waiting to emerge. So it's, it's inherently tied in. You blew my mind in several, in like quick succession there. There's a lot to unpack. The image comes up of an acorn and an oak tree um, a similar example I heard where the ego is essentially like a suit or something that we wear on top of our true selves. And I guess it happens at such an early point in our development uh, in, in many different ways afterward, like in, in, in school and in work and at, uh, in the town that we live in, where it just becomes habit almost, where being inauthentic is uh, the status quo. Yep. How would you go about how would you recommend people go about discovering who they are if, if they don't know, if they've ever known? So I use language. Language gives everything away. So it's not about discovering who you are. It's about understanding who you're not. So we look at, we're born, right? So um, we, get, we become born, we come into this world, we're pure, we're innocent, fully connected to God or spirit, source, life, whatever. You look in the eyes of a child, there's no sin there or there's no, there's no issues there. They're just a... Uh, a present miracle, you could almost say. And then through various traumas and events, we start to block things off. Like in the email that you mentioned that you sent me around a bit of a fear of public speaking, which we'll get into today. Yeah. So what happens is we go through these necessary traumas and events which start to make us understand the world in a certain way. So let's say we grow up in an environment that's somewhat dangerous. We're going to have this egoic programming switch on this egoic program is going to be something like I'm not safe. So if I'm not safe subconsciously, my conscious mind is going to be constantly looking for a threat. Mm. Now, if I'm a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Mm. So in the world of the ego, everything is based in a form of negative programming. So I'm not something, I'm not enough, I'm not safe, whatever it is. So if I say to you, all right, Dave, don't think about a red car. You start thinking about a red car. But you don't think about the words, don't think about a red car. You start thinking about an image of the red car, which the programming of don't think about a red car sends an image up into the conscious mind because it's subconscious to keep you away from discovering this. So if I'm not safe, I'm going to try to manage this through the anticipation of threat, danger, or an absence of safety, which is going to keep me stuck in the world of I'm not safe. So what we have to do is we have to actually realize that it's not actually a truth that we're not safe. There's very few experiences we have which are life-threatening. And if they're life-threatening, then it shows the nature of how to overcome that because you may not have been safe, but you still survived it, which means you're safe even going through an experience where you're not safe. So what we have to look at is what's showing up in the content of the world. So what are the relationships we're having? What are the failures that we're having? What are the the limitations? What do we get triggered by? What are we upset by? 
why do all of our relationships seem to be the same as our parents when we go into it because we're trying to overcome something? So we have to look at the content of the world and then reverse engineer that into what context we're looking at the world through. So as an example, a lot of entrepreneurs, I'm sure that would listen to this, would use affirmation. You know, affirmation is just a reaction to a negation. So if I'm not enough, I'm going to write out I'm enough 500 times a day to try to overcome that not realizing that I'm reinforcing the fact that I'm not enough because if I believed I was enough, I wouldn't have to write it. So we have to look to break out of this dualistic structure, which is to move towards or move away, fight, flight, right? Um, anxious attachment, avoidant attachment, success, failure, fear of loss, desire for gain. Everything's in a dualistic aspect. It's actually up to us to go deeper than that to understand why that's there and then transcend that because we have negative emotional addictions which reinforce certain things we learned in childhood which we conflate as love. There was a lot in that. So I'm happy to go through like multiple things there to unpack that for you. But that's how we work as a, as a human. So I'll give the structure just because I know there'll be a lot of system focused, um, logically, analytically driven people that listen to this. Okay. At the basic of everything, it's vibration. This is physics. The way that we interpret the world is through the word. Word creates a language, language creates a code, code creates a program. Programs sit in the subconscious or the unconscious, they're kind of one and the same. What happens is a set of thoughts live within each of these programs. So thoughts go into the conscious mind. Thoughts are 20 times stronger than feelings from a frequency perspective. Thoughts inform feelings. Feelings will then dictate behaviors. Behaviors produce results. Results create experiences. Experiences repeat and form patterns. Most people are trying to break things at the behavior results and pattern end, not realizing there's a whole chain underneath this that they need to understand first to dissolve it. Fascinating. Uh, I thought that emotions actually informed thoughts, but you're telling me it's the other way around? Well, let's look at this. If you're walking down the street, let's say you're going through a breakup. If you're not thinking about the person, you're not upset. But if you start thinking about the person, you go, I miss them. I wish they were here. All of that. Now, there's, there's an aspect like there's efferent and afferent fibers our society is very much focused on feeling at the moment. Like men need to process their feelings, all that sort of stuff. There's an element to that that's true. So there's negative emotional attachments, attachments which are driven by feeling, but there's the thoughts which precede it. That's why when we're trying to manifest something, we have to think it into existence first. Okay. Thoughts are a much lighter um, frequency than feelings. Feelings are heavy and dense. They're in the body. That's where things show up at the last mechanism. So... If we're just working on feeling something continually, thoughts are going to be informing the feeling. That's the way I've seen it, and that's the way I've worked with thousands of people to help overcome that. You're not thinking about something, you're not upset. That's why we meditate, to get rid of thoughts. We're not feeling the sadness, the grief, the shame, the anger, whatever it is that has been coming up prior to that. Eliminate the thoughts, you eliminate the feeling. Okay. You mentioned you, you've worked with a thousand, over thousands of people around the yeah. world. I'm sure yeah. some of those people are coming from different cultures. Have you noticed uh, a difference in the way that people approach like getting into contact with their authentic selves uh, across cultures? Or is that pretty universal? It's more Western culture that we look at. So it'll be done more based on a masculine and feminine approach. The masculine will typically be success driven, money, status, wealth. Women will be more typically the way they look, sexuality, family, you know, getting a husband or, you know, that kind of relationship to it. That's kind of been inverted a bit now where we have a lot of women which are corporate go-getters, which is fine, and men that are becoming more stay-at-home dads. So there's a bit of a switch in that. But typically, biologically, you know, a man is about resources and a woman is about security and safety. So those are always going to be the same because that's biologically driven at the genetic level. Speaking of genetic level, I'm curious, I've heard like nature versus nurture, and you brought up trauma earlier and affecting the way that people process, uh, look at the world, seeing uh, every, everything as a nail, for example. What do you think is the differentiator, if there is one, between people who don't want others to feel shame and people that do want others to feel shame? It's an interesting question. Like both of those aren't possible because it's like what they're trying to do is overcome something within them. So we are largely solipsistic. I can't live Dave's experience. I can't jump into your head and then live your experience. So I can't prove actually that anything exists outside of me. 
So if someone doesn't want someone else to feel shame, it's because they're disowning their own shame. And if someone wants to f wants another person to feel shame, then they want the other person to feel what they're already feeling anyway. It's just a projection. So they don't really go anywhere with that. So it's, it's in Adlerian psychology, it's called separation of tasks. So it's like, if I speak the truth and I'm authentic and honest, which that's my task, how you take that is your task. It's not my task. So when we separate the tasks, if someone doesn't want someone else to feel shame, they might be overly loving. They may not give the person that opportunity to experience shame, which could be very healing. The other person that wants another person to feel shame, they're both just disowning their own shame. Amazing. I see that that's right, because that the not wanting others to feel shame falls into perhaps the people-pleasing dynamic where you don't want to have conflict or discomfort. But in a sense, it, it is dishonest because you're you're avoiding your own shame so that's definitely and that's going to land in a in a programming of i'm bad yeah if i feel like i'm fundamentally bad that's going to produce the feelings of shame yeah. shame is going to generate circumstances of humiliation mm -hmm. so shame will attract that in by physics right and our our response to that is going to be to want to isolate uh -huh. but shame provides a very powerful tool because toxic shame generates humiliation uh -huh. healthy shame generates humility so that's where we own it, which then eventually turns into humor and you make fun of it. So humility, humor, and humiliation all come from the root word hum, which means to ground, to bring you back down to earth. So when someone says, hang your head in shame, what do you look at? You look at the ground. So that's the purpose of it. Okay, you're, you're very good. Let's, let's talk a little bit about your background. How did you get here? Sure. So I used to own an investment company. Firstly, I mean, I grew up in a very, very difficult environment. It was very abusive, was very manipulative. My parents sort of, you know, pulled the puppet strings around that, of which I came into this life to be free from that. And I've had some pretty profound spiritual experiences around that, understanding that, which I can go into. But for most of my life, I was pretty wild, pretty rebellious, fairly defiant, which when you grow up in an oppressive environment, you're going to want to withdraw or defy. My twin brother took the withdrawal. I went through the defiance. It's just the balancing act. Families are like a weighted like strings with like weights on and everyone has a role to balance out the structure of what we come here to learn. So then I went into, you know, the typical masculine attribute, success, women, money, all of that, which was just a compensation for the void I felt inside of feeling deprived, inauthentic, out of integrity. So I had an investment company and one day I just woke up and I was like, I can't do this anymore. I need to figure out what I'm supposed to be doing. I had it all. You know, millions of dollars, apartment, fast cars, beautiful women, all of it. And I like the the size of that was directly correlated to the void that I felt inside where I was miserable. So I moved to the mountains in New Zealand, healed my body of the drugs, the alcohol, everything else, and realized that I was meant to be in the world of therapy. And then I started a path on that. And so discovering this stuff in the investment world when I was selling investments, I started to be able to predict what someone was going to say because it was like everyone's these automatons. They just regurgitate the same stuff. So then I started to say, oh, well, one guy is driven by greed. Another guy is driven by worried about loss. Another one, his wife tells him what to do. Another one doesn't trust me yet. And then I could start to predict what someone was going to say based on their canned responses. And I'm like... Man, it's like I'm just talking to robots. And then I started to say, but this is a pattern. This is pattern recognition. And I was like, there's something in this. And then I started to be able to listen to the way that someone could breathe and what they weren't saying. When you can hear what someone isn't saying, that's where you know you, you can listen. And that's really what I'm able to pick up on is what someone doesn't say at this point. So I got out of that and then I said, well, I'm going to go into therapy and I wanted to work in sexual trauma. Like this was just coming through for me for some reason. Never happened to me, but it was just a path that I went down. And what I realized is this ability to listen and hear these programs actually transferred into the, uh, the therapy and the healing space that I was working in. I'd had about 10 or 20% from the investment world. And then I just extended out on it to like this really deep level just through working with people and understanding that. So it's kind of how I got here. Fascinating. And I'd say, sorry, but it looks like you don't need uh, sympathies or apologies. You're, that was a gift. The, yeah. Sometimes the, the superpower is unlocked through a, you know, an unpleasant experience. But yeah. um, do you like believe, for lack of a better word, um, the Myers-Briggs personality types? The, I think that's kind of uses some Jungian uh, research. 
Yeah, I mean, the thing I don't like about labels is like labels and diagnosis are meant to free us, but they actually restrict us. Okay. You know, so if we're looking to understand why we are the way we are, we label this. You know, my sister does this and I call her like the P90 brother label maker because she's just continually labeling herself with different diagnosis, different like all this sort of stuff. And it's like that's all in the ego. The ego wants to label, uh, you know. We're yeah. going to be driven towards certain things. Mm-hmm. Like as an example, you know, um, someone asked me once on a podcast, like, do you just have an answer for everything? And I said, well, if you ask me to fix a toilet, I'm not going to know how to do that. But you know who to contact. Yeah. And she goes, but that's still an answer. I said, but it's an honest answer because I don't want to know how to fix a toilet. Yeah. But understanding the human condition, that's what I pull towards. So is one of them going to be driven and confined out of like Myers-Briggs, like I'm an INFJ or an ENFJ, or I think I was an ENFJ or something like that. Yeah. But it's, it makes us look through a lens that's quite limited and we may miss opportunities as we try to understand the world through our perception. So when we look through perception, everything's just a perception. So like if I wore red lens glasses from the day I was born, like what color am I going to see all the time? You know, most people would think red, but that's not true because I wouldn't know what red is. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't know what red is because I'd have nothing to compare it to. Well, that too. Yeah. But once you took them off, the world would probably look green. Exactly. So if I'm an INFJ, then I'm going to probably use the iPad, which is introversion to make me want to reinforce my social anxiety or not go out and just go, oh, that's it. I'm an empath or I'm an INFJ, whatever. I'm 1% of the population. So now I feel special, which makes sense of my trauma instead of trying to eliminate that to go, well, actually, there's a whole palette of human condition and emotions that I can experience. Why am I limiting myself by one small thing? Like as an example, you know, the empath title, you know, i the real empaths of this world, there's a tiny percentage of them. And it's not, these people will take on other people's sicknesses. It's not this romantic notion where people go, I feel everyone's stuff. I might know you have a dysregulated nervous system because you've been traumatized and you need to be on constant lookout for how other people feel to make sense of your world. You're not empathic. You're in a constant state of fight or flight and you don't realize it. So it's the way that like we label these things as this almost like heroic pop psychology thing when really it's like your nervous system's dysregulated. Like I could sit there and say, I'm an empath. I don't want to be an empath. I just want to be at utter peace and empty most of the time so I can make the the decision from the greatest point of awareness, which levels things out in a fair way so I'm not defined or limited by something that I did on a test that told me, you know, I'm an INFJ or an ENFJ, whatever it is. So I do believe there is truth to it. There's accuracy, but I'd rather go beyond labels than... um, than be boxed in by something like that. I like that. I've found that labels and categorization seems handy, but actually limiting because yeah. like you say, you're, you're no longer actually seeing the data that's there and the, uh, both from the observer standpoint, but also from the, the agent standpoint, um, like, oh, I can't do this. I'm an INFJ or, oh, you know, I can't do that. I'm, I'm not a toilet mechanic or something. And whatever yeah. that, that word is a uh, plumber, I guess. But um, Okay, there's a, there's a lot to, to go in so many different directions, but let's maybe talk about um, one thing I've noticed in the workplace, and this might be more in a corporate setting or a group setting. Um, people like myself, perhaps, that are use, trying to fit in by playing a role in ticking boxes of what we understand to be expected, wind up using a lot more energy, it seems, than is required to uh, perform a task because we're actually performing multiple tasks. We're burning a candle at both ends with a blowtorch uh, because we're not actually being authentic. And I think you could uh, conserve a lot of energy and, and channel a lot of energy uh, in, in your authentic pursuits and your authentic personality. And ironically, I, I kind of feel this to be true, that in trying to fit in, you actually don't fit in. And by not fitting in, by being your unique and authentic self, you actually do fit in. What do you think about that? 100% agree. It's like someone needs to experience true acceptance of belonging of themselves before others will will make them feel or where you'll find people that will make you feel belong like belonging and acceptance. The irony of that is that's where you don't need it anymore. So it's like when we're trying to fit in, because what you said is this expectation that you have to live up to. So expectations, when I was looking at the construct of that, I found them quite interesting because I was repeating certain things. So an expectation will form in pessimistic or optimistic. So the optimistic is like, Someone's going to go on a holiday, as an example. They go on a holiday. It's not as good as they thought it was going to be. Then they come back and remember it was better than what it was, Mm. right? That's the optimist. They're 10 to 20% of people. 
the pessimist, which is more driven by the negation of the ego, which we we're talking about earlier, is going to be like, well, I want to go on a holiday, but it's 25 grand. But I go on a holiday and then the holiday is way better than I thought it was going to be. I come back and then I go, ah, you know what? I could use that 25 grand right now. That wasn't really worth it. You know, but it's just, it's the way that we look at these things. But what I realized is when we repeat things, the expectation that we project into the future, what is universally missed is that the body's going to store energy to be able to mitigate, manage, or avoid that circumstance which has been projected by our own mentality into the future. So relative to the expectation in the workplace, it's like what your language was saying is, well, I want to get it right. I don't want to fail. I don't want to fuck this up. I don't want to make a mistake. Because at some point in my history, my parents made me feel, or my teachers or something like that made me feel like I can't make a mistake. I can't get it wrong because I'm defined by these metrics of performance, which then I'm going to keep replaying and then I can't help but not live up to the very thing that I'm trying to avoid because that's the expectation I'm creating. So the body is going to hold on to the amount of energy and then can't help but draw that circumstance in to reveal it so the energy can be released. That's what happens in expectations. Wowzers. Um <laughs> there's one thing I noticed in my tourism days that uh, what you just described is uh, we got a good sample of uh, people on tour and uh, a small group. You'd have about 14 people and the role of the tour leader uh, it was the role that I performed. And I, I found that um, what's interesting, I could do this like in the role. I just had difficulty doing it in my life. It's like once I was playing a part, it was actually easier because I guess my ego was taken out of it. But um, I noticed, I, looking back now with some of the words that you have brought up in this conversation, that I wasn't reflecting back the energy to the pessimists. I was like letting it go. So it was almost like water crashing against a cliff face kind of, and they realized perhaps they could relax a little bit. Whereas if I was in my ego state, uh, I might have reflected back, like, do you realize all the preparation I've done, all the money that's gone into this, like put a smile on your face, uh, you Debbie Downer. And that would actually reflect back like negative information, which they expected, and they would create this uh, vicious cycle. Yeah. Uh, so what what do you say to, to people that could be managing a team, let's say, or talking to a client where you're faced with an energy that is not conducive to, the, to a good outcome? What role should the entrepreneur or CEO play? Yeah, so that's a really good, really good thing. Firstly, you got to realize you're never going to please everyone. That's the first thing. Like you cannot, if you satisfy everyone's needs, that's inauthentic. So the thing is now, because we live in such a polished, fake society, that integrity and authenticity is the real social currency. So what I get people to do if they're going to a public speaking, I remember I was working with a guy and he rang me and he's had like dry mouth, like the whole bin. He's going into a business deal, the biggest one of his life where he had to present. I can't remember what it was worth. It's like 20 million bucks or something like that to him. Some Something, I can't remember. It was a few years ago now. And... I said to him, I go, the first thing you're going to do is walk in and say how nervous you are to them. So walk in and say, I am so fucking nervous right now speaking in front of you guys. And I'm going to do my best. And these are exact words that I'm going to do my best not to fuck it up, but I'm probably going to. And if I do just know I'm giving it my best shot and that's what I'm going to go for. So the first thing, like you're in a board of directors, everyone's trying to be perfect. This guy brings humanity into it. People can relate to that. That's the first thing. The second thing I said, have you ever done a business deal this big? He goes, no, never. I said, so you don't even know what it's like to get one. So you're afraid of something that you've never had. So how can you be afraid of something that you never had? And he was like, oh, I've never thought about it like that. I said, so whether you get this or whether you don't, are you going to be okay? He's like, no, 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 I won't be. I said, that's not what I'm asking. You might want it, but think about this. Will you keep living? Will you keep breathing? Will you still be okay? Will you actually be okay? Yes or no, if you don't get this deal. And he just took this long breath out. He goes, oh, yeah, I'll be okay. Another example is I had a woman uh, that I was working with once. She's going through a really hard breakup. And I said, at some point, will you be okay? She said, no, Jag, I'm going to die of sadness. And I went, no, you're not. You aren't. I said, this is the story we tell ourselves to get into it. So when we operate authentically, what happens, there's a, good, there's a good saying by Mark Twain, which is if you don't lie, you have nothing to remember, huh. right? So 
this psychic distortion of trying to be perfect for everyone takes up a lot of energy. So if you don't lie, you have nothing to remember. When you're being authentic, you're not trying to impress the other person. So what becomes available here is understanding. You start to understand people like you want to understand the person through their eyes. Then you get to move into dialogue. Most people are just in a monologue. They're waiting for their turn to talk. Then it's someone wants to be right. The other person just doesn't want to be wrong. And there's a battle that's going on continuously. So if someone comes in and say is, you know, like they're running a team or anything else, making the person feel heard and understood is the is one of the greatest gifts you can give someone. So now there's going to be obviously objectives that need to be managed and worked to. But if you can work to that on a human perspective, because people don't feel valued anymore, they don't feel valued for their input, they'll get replaced within a week. And people feel that people don't want to feel disposable. So if we look to actually honor the gifts that people bring into the circumstance as opposed to the deficit that they're creating, which is usually the typical performance-based review is based on deficit, not value, you get a, a very different response to people and make it human, make it human. That's the most important thing that I can ever teach anyone is you're across, you're sitting across from another human being, not a number, treat them as a human being and you'll, it just changes things dramatically. What are your thoughts on the current landscape that we see, the, the current global society, global, global civilization? I think there's going to be a financial reset, to be perfectly clear. And I think it's being engineered. Um, and I, th I, I think that that's part of what's been going on in the world at the moment is to collapse the current system into, I mean, how far do you want to go with that question, really? Like, how far down the rabbit hole do you want to go? But you know, the way that I look at things is I operate and this is just my life, the way I live, you know, I've had 17 different businesses, I've made tons of money, you know, I'm an entrepreneur myself, I'm just living purposefully. And you know, my business represents that. So I live asymmetrically. So this is what I do. So I have, I put in a small amount of time each day, and I make a lot of money, my investments, are I put in a bit of money, and I expect big returns, I don't go to the traditional models at all. So I don't own property, like all of my stuff is in crypto, I make it multiply it, then preserve it. And I keep things, I try to keep things as far out of the traditional system as possible. So I never keep more than $20,000 in one bank. In Australia, they have bail-in laws. So if in the event of an economic collapse, they can take 40% of your savings if the government needs it, which will come out of our retirement funds. Um, having a mortgage I don't believe in because debt is a chain and it keeps you working, it keeps you stressed. Um, so I don't use debt. I never use debt or credit. I'm out of that completely. If I don't have the cash, I don't buy it. Whenever I make uh, returns on my investments, if I double my money, I take it out and I put it into something like gold that's traditional, that's exchangeable in the event of an economic collapse. Um, I don't watch the news. I don't partake in the news. I don't partake in like any of the conspiracy stuff or the alternative to that. I don't buy into any of that. I focus on being the kindest, most helpful, most loving, most generous person I can be while I look after my health. My life starts to reflect that through my connections, through my community, through the value that I bring into the world. You get that right. Like we can sort of sit there and play doom and gloom and World War Three is about to break up and all that sort of stuff. And it's like, what, like, I just don't see the point of giving my energy to that anymore. It's like, I just go, I'm not dealing with it. I don't talk about it. I don't post about it. I used to post about it a little bit. But it just takes so much psychic energy. And it's like, we're all going to die anyway. If World War III is coming, that's already written. If the economic grid's going to go down or there's a cyber polygon attack, which the whole world grid goes down, me talking about it's not going to do much. I want to get to the point where if there's, you know, if it's the end of the world and it's all chaos and doom and gloom, I'm with my woman, my wife, I'm with my children and I'm holding them and I've given every minute I can to the best possible life that I can live. Because life is coming for us one way or another. I posted this the other day. I said, life will come for you. And you can't beat life. It's got, you can argue with reality, but you'll be wrong 100% of the time. So be as loving and giving, as rewarding as possible, and live a great life where whenever that giant wave comes, whenever God opens up the heavens and floods again, I can go, oh, yeah, I lived a good life. And that's really the key. Just live life and be a good person. Help as many people as you can. And by doing so, the responding ripple in the collective, co collective consciousness may make sure that that doesn't happen. And that's, that's what I focus on. Well said. Yeah, there's a lot there that uh, resonates. Um, are you a hugger? 
big time. There's an interesting study. I was, I was, how should I say this? I was at an event at Harvard Medical, uh, uh, Harvard Medical Center, and one of the neuroscientists was doing research on how the brain responds to hugging. And there's an Indian guru who you may have heard of named Ama. She goes affectionately called by yeah, your mother. The hugging scientist. Yep, exactly. And she comes from a village where hugging isn't really practiced, but she just felt intuitively that she needed to hug someone and that that would help each other, help, help her and the other person. And it turned into her being known as the hugging saint. She's hugged about 40 million people around the world now. And I discovered something in my personal life very similarly, in, in Japan, the culture there isn't, uh, isn't a hugging culture. And uh, I was in a situation uh, late at night where a gentleman was um, giving me a little bit of uh, anger. And I saw in his eyes that beneath the anger was pain. And um, I just uh, hugged him like instinctively. And uh, he was like, at first, like, let me go, let me go. And I didn't let him go. And then he started crying. Yep. And then he said, sorry. And um, he like, calmed down. He just needed to, like you say, uh, the best thing you can give someone is to hear them and, and listen them, to them and give them space, give them existence, essentially. Because you also said, like, you know, you can't prove that the world is real on your own. And I thought that was interesting how that kind of transcended cultures where hugging maybe wouldn't be a cultural um, kind of uh, function, but yet everyone knows how to respond to it when it happens. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Man, it's, it's so this is such a beautiful example because anger actually says stay away from me. It's a boundary setter. It's saying get away from me because it's a it's a guardian. I call anger a guardian of boundaries, and it's always protecting the hurt that's underneath it, which is sadness. When you're processing emotion, you can go through rage, hostility, grief, guilt, shame, desire. Everything covers up sadness. Sadness is the bottom of the ocean. That's why it needs to come up. Everything like if you get someone that's in rage. They scream into a pillow five times. Usually by the fifth or sixth scream, they're going to break down into tears because that's what everything's protecting. Hmm. So what you actually did was he was saying, stay away from me. And instinctively in your human biology and your, you could say humanity, your soul, your spirit, God, whatever, it doesn't really matter, said, this person's asking me to stay away, but I actually know what he needs at a deeper level is to be held. He probably wasn't held as a child, probably had abusive parents, and in that space, that's what we need to do. And this is what I teach men as well. When, you, when your woman's upset, don't try to fix it. Just say, give it to me, babe. I've got you. Can I hold you for a minute? You won't need to deal with the problem. So all these things that men think are problems with women, that they don't understand them, I'm like, just hold her. Listen to her, then hold her for 60 seconds. And say, I'm not letting you go for 60 seconds. Usually they'll start laughing by the end of it. It's that I, simple. I that's, assume that's we shouldn't the, count the seconds. Yeah. No, just hold on. I'm going to time you. I'm setting my watch. <laughs> You're not allowed to talk for 60 yeah. seconds. I'm just going to hold you. So it's a beautiful part of being human because that's all we need is children. It's mm. like when you, a baby's in turmoil mm. and you hold the baby. And then what happens is that it's just going to gradually soften and then go to sleep. There's no difference between that and our nervous systems as children or as adults. So I'm going to try a, a, a strange question for you. It's, it feels better when we're in harmony, when we're authentic selves and people are hugging each other and smiling and being productive. Would we be successful? Do we need the, the trauma and the anger and the negativity in order to have the, the nice things that we like? It's a good question. You know, it's like, would we be successful? How do you define success? Multiplanetary species curing cancer. Would that cure cancer, I guess? Um, mm -hmm. You know, could we be productive and hardworking in a sustained way if we weren't being chased by something, chased by fear, chased by anger, whatever. So my thing would be around success is that I'm peaceful regardless of what's going on. Yeah. So two different definitions of it. So I think we come here innocent, we collect traumas. So people will say trauma is why I am the way I am. Or we could sit there and say, well, what meaning am I giving to my trauma to confirm something? Because trauma doesn't actually, this will be controversial, and it's, I say it with love and, you know, openness, but trauma doesn't mean anything unless we give it meaning. Hmm. So when we make it mean something, it defines us like a label. Yeah. But, like, one of the things I say is, like, people ask me, how do I know I've healed? I'm like, you forget. 
You don't remember. You don't hold on to things. It's like, what's the quickest way to feeling good? Tell the truth. What's the quickest way to healing to realize there's nothing wrong? And how do you know you've healed? You forget. It goes away. You forget about it. So that's like, you know, if you're not thinking about something, you're not feeling something. So what I actually see trauma as is kind of like the lock and the key to become an outstanding person. It gives us an opportunity to transcend something because if we didn't have it, we'd probably all just be lying around going, eh, whatever. But we come here to learn that because there is a sense of separation. And so when we have that separation, like we come into this world where in our mother's womb, that's our safety net. Then we're ripped away from that. We're separated usually. And then what happens, it's about feeling separate from ourselves so we can learn to connect. So then we can connect with other and see there is no separation. That's just the goal. And that's love that connects everyone. It sounds, you know, Pollyanna-ish almost or like utopia, a utopian society, but I've gone through it. I've healed my childhood trauma. I had massive walls up around my heart, which uh, the greatest gift I was ever given was a highly abusive and dangerous ex that broke all those walls down. She didn't break my heart. She broke all the walls down around my heart. And that had put me into a place of deep peace and interconnectedness to everyone else that I see the similarities rather than the differences. People like, it's like love and hate as an example, love and hate have the same motivation. Both of them seek to unify. Now, when I say this, people are like, yeah, your face is sort of, wait, what? (laughs) It's, it's a strange concept because people don't get it at first, but love says, I see the similarities in you. So I want to connect because Uh I understand you. Hate says, I see the differences in you. I want you to be the same because I want you to understand me so we can connect and unify. That's why religious wars are started. Two different, two different gods. But if you convert to my God, I'll love you. Yeah. That's the basis of it. Hate wants to unify by trying to create cohesion in mutual understanding because we're different. It gives us the opportunity to see the similarities like love does. And that's what happens with love and hate. It's two sides of the same coin, just a different energy with which it's expressed, different perception. It's like fear and excitement. Fear and excitement hit in the same place in the stomach. Fear is something that's going to be somewhat of a negative and pressure-based feeling. Mm-hmm. Excitement might be a little bit more expansive. It's just the way that you look at it, but it's the same thing. It's the same with love and hate. They're both very intense, hot, passionate emotions. But if we look at it, they're both seeking to unify. That's why it's like, I'm going to fight against you because my God's better. But if you were to convert to my God, I'm going to love you. Welcome. I felt that love was stronger than hate. I've heard that there are two sides of the same coin. I haven't heard it put quite the way that you did, but I just felt that love was stronger. Love, like you said, anger covers sadness. I feel like hate covers love. Like if you break down the hate, love remains. Like love can conquer hate, but hate doesn't necessarily conquer love. Yeah. Maybe I'm out of my depth. What do you, what do you think about that? Yeah. Look, it depends on the type of love that you're talking about as well. Right. So there's romantic love. There's the idea of unconditional love, which I don't agree with unconditional love because it implies there's a version of love that's conditional. And I don't believe love is conditional. Love is all accepting, all encompassing. Love transcends hate because it even accepts the hate. That's why it's so powerful. Love does conquer everything. It really does. I agree with that. Hate is just the other side of the coin to help us discover love. That's it. And so it's just a different mechanism, but it's two branches on the same tree. Love is the root, I believe, of everything. Commonality and differences are just two sides of the same coin too. It's both an opportunity to discover who we are because the differences we see in someone else are really just what we see in ourselves anyway. The person's just a mirror. So whatever annoys us about someone is really just what annoys us about ourselves. And the thing that we love about someone else it's usually the thing that we enjoy about ourselves too. So, we're all, so underneath we're it, all a bunch of narcissists so, for all just seeing ourselves in the world. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, I could talk about the narcissist for a while. Right. But there is a, there's a healthy sense of that through self-preservation and self-motivation to understand oneself. But when you look at it, it's not from, I, it's all about me. That's the difference between the narcissistic. It's all about me versus it's all about us. When you really see that, it's not just, I can only see you through me. It's a, I can actually see that we're all connected. It's all about us. So I wouldn't say it's narcissistic. It's the opposite to that. Narcissistic is, it's all about me. None of you matter, and I'll take what I need to regardless of you. It's exploitative, right. whereas um, the other way is collaborative. That's a good way to put it. I, that's interesting. I see these contradictions in, in the world, and like that. It's like I see 
what, whatever I see in you is actually me projected onto you. And yet it's about us coming together. So we're seeing ourselves, but yet we're collaborating and cooperating. Isn't, isn't that kind of funny in a way? Yeah. So that's a good, it's, and that's what I was about to get to. So when I see you as myself, what happens there when it's in a negative basis, it's ego to help us overcome that. That's identity. When you get past that into the language of the soul, there's no I there that exists anymore. So I don't see you in me. I see the connection between us that we're bonded through something much deeper. Mm -hmm. So I'm not Jaguar, you're not Dave. You're just another aspect of divine creation. And that's a much bigger place to live where you, you see someone not for who they are, sorry, not for what they are, but for who they are at the deepest level, which is I would never want to hurt another person in my life. And I've been violent before and aggressive. You know, I got years of martial arts under my belt, a lot of street fights, all that sort of stuff because I was angry and I was scared. But it's different between I can see in me what I see in you. That's egotistical. Whereas I know what is underneath that. There is no separation. Everything from a, you know, and Christians would disagree with me on this. Like the soul is in everything. We're just different fragments of it. And that's to discover our divinity through a connection to God. And that would bring peace on earth if everyone looked at, at the world through that sense. You might like uh, Japanese Shinto. Uh, it's uh, similar in that everything kind of having uh, is a God. And I think what you said reminds me of an article I read about fungi, like mushrooms, and uh, how they're kind of the great translators of nature. They can uh, communicate with animals and with plants. And um, to some extent, I assume we can as well. And what you've mentioned about kind of seeing someone for who they are, not what they are, uh, and having this kind of central... Um, I don't know, like Gaia or something, like just a central uh, universal consciousness. I wanted to explore a little bit. I mean, I realize that's a big subject, but like I've, I've, I've like had a feeling like someone, like I've thought of someone out of the blue. Let's say a year or two goes by and I haven't really thought of them for whatever reason, different countries, different jobs. And then all of a sudden they, they call me or there's like an email. Yeah. And that's happened a few times. And the pessimist might say, oh, that's just a coincidence. I'm like, really? <laughs> that's one heck of a coincidence. So what do you say to those kind of uh, situations? Yeah, I mean, I, the, one of the first women I ever worked with in sexual trauma, she came to me because she wanted to find a relationship. And she didn't, she didn't come to me to heal sexual trauma or anything like that. And I said to her, sorry, I've just got something in my eye. And I said to her, we we're going through it. And I said to her, I go, the reason why you haven't attracted the man is because you haven't been vulnerable. And she's like, yes, I have. And so prior to this, she told me that she hadn't spoken to her dad since she was 26. She was 44 at the time. And her dad's best friend abused her as a little girl when she was six. And she told her dad when she was 26 and the dad denied it. And she used this really graphic description. I still remember it. She goes, he was stuffing his face with food and sausages and just said, oh, that didn't happen. And she was like, how dare you? It did happen and didn't speak to him for, what, 18 years. So I said to her, I go, the reason why you can't attract a man in or you haven't is because you're not being vulnerable. And this woman, she was a strong woman, so she didn't like it when I said that because I said, you're full of shit. You, you're not being vulnerable. She's, yes, I am. I said, no, you're not. And she's like, yeah, I am. I think I know myself. I said, when was the last time you think you were vulnerable? And she goes, in my last relationship, I said, no, it was when you were six in that room where your dad's best friend hurt you. And she, she went like still, almost catatonic. And she's like... <gasps> Oh, uh, like that. And for five days, she went through a deep grieving process. Anyway, the next day after this, she got a message from her father apologizing for not keeping her safe. 18 years later, the day after. Now, what had happened? Because she had made, we'd made something unconscious become conscious. Yeah. Her physical state released a resistance to her father. Subconsciously, we're all connected. There's no separation. This is what I was talking about earlier. There is no separation between us. So what happened is in a way that he didn't understand, in a way she didn't understand, we released a part of her that was actually saying, I don't want my father to say sorry because then in my perception of him, I get to be right about the fact that he didn't keep me safe and then that way I don't have to open up and let a man in because I didn't trust him, he didn't keep me safe, so I don't have to be vulnerable because I was hurt when I was six years old. So the father picked up on it on some on the quantum level, the fifth dimension whatever you call it, the psychic connection broke or the psychic resistance broke between them. He picked up on it 
and said, I'm so sorry that I never kept you safe as a little girl. They repaired their relationship within three months. She'd met the man and got married a year or two later because she wasn't ready. She was saying, no, stay out. I don't feel safe in the world. And so these bonds are created between people. It's like you can sit there and think about someone, bam, because they're thinking about you. You're thinking about them. You pick up on it in some sort of web that we're all interlinked with. If that's not the biggest indicator that we're all connected, that's evidence for it. That is hard evidence. I think about someone, oh, they just messaged me. It happens to me all the time. The reason why we don't tap into it is because these egoic structures that keep us in fear of abandonment, fear of rejection, fear of failure, all resistance points, which are stopping us from accessing these parts of us, which are inherent. I have precognitive dreams all the time where, you know, like I'll know what's going to happen the next day and then that happens. So out, that's outside of time almost in the dream space. Mm. So we think everything is cause and effect, but we actually live in more around like potentiality and actuality where things collapse into form from fifth dimensional wave function through fourth dimensional time into three dimensional particle. And when we start to access those places, that's where we see we're all connected in a, in ways that I haven't been fully, be, fully been able to understand yet, but it shows the power of the connection we have with people. Like there's, I don't believe there's anything, any such thing as coincidence. I've seen the magnificence and the perfection play out thousands and thousands of times in my own life. Everything is coming back to us for our transcendence so we can access what we come into this world with as a child, which is innocence and purity and direct connection to God and spirit and love. That's what this game is about. And I can't, I just can't see it in any other way because I've just seen too much evidence for it. Well, let's close with social anxiety and nervousness with public speaking. What would you say to someone who needs to lead in that type of situation where they need to get a message across to an audience? And there could be, let's say, branding implications if they don't deliver it well. Just be, be human and be humble and be honest because all that's reflecting back to them is at some point in the past where they might have been let the sports team down, bullied by a coach, by a parent, where they were humiliated in front of a class. So they have to understand that their big fear is of doing or saying something wrong. That's the first thing. That's the program that there is like, I might get this wrong. And then the weight of that is going to make me relive the experience that when I was a kid, but then I can't help but relive that because that's why I'm in the situation. So I'm always, always saying to people, be honest, get up on stage and go, you know what? I've never done this and I'm pretty nervous about it because I guarantee you 99% of people in that audience would feel the same. So you're automatically connected to these people. The ones that are these, like Barack Obama was a great speaker. Like imagine trying to live up to that expectation. I'd rather get on stage and just be really honest and go, I haven't done it. I'm shaking a bit. I'm nervous. I don't really get nervous. I'm not a nervous guy, but damn, I'm nervous right now because I care about how this is going to go. And you can start to, when we start to relate, like relate is relationship. The biggest fear, I think, I haven't looked this up for a while. The greatest fear is public speaking. Why is that? Fear of exposure. Exposure from what though? Being seen for who they are getting it wrong, getting rejected, being abandoned, being left out of the group. So if you think tribally, primal in our genetics, if we're cast out into the wilderness, that means certain death. So if we're in with a tribe that we want to impress, if we say or do something wrong, our primal genetics say, you might be cast out into the wilderness. And that means certain death. So the exposure for getting it wrong to be fallible, to be human is something that we try to hide because our society is set up to create these demands of perfection that we're never, ever going to hit. Like you look at billionaires and celebrities are worshipped, supermodels are worshipped. No wonder people have image issues where it's constantly trying to reinforce this idea that you're not perfect. Rather than try to be perfect, embrace the imperfection because even in the imperfection, you'll realise that's perfect too. It's not perfectly imperfect. Everything is complete in its mm -hmm. moment. So I always say, go the opposite way. Don't be perfect. Get up and say that you're nervous. Start off with a joke. Start off with a personal anecdote. If you're nervous about getting up, they say, you know, last time I was in front of a crowd this big, I was throwing the lacrosse ball and I missed it in the grand final and the coach nailed me for it. And now I'm starting to re-experience that. So please, no one throw a lacrosse ball at me. Or maybe do and wake me up. Start off with something light. Be honest about it. The one of the things that is so attractive to people is humility and honesty through our flaws. That's why comedians, you see like comedians, they use their tragedy and turn it into humor. They turn, that's what I said earlier about shame. Shame generates humility. 
humility is a is a very powerful force where like you did when you hug that person that's humility people need more humility because the opposite of that is pride you know to be proud of something i'll never get it wrong i'm infallible i can't be broken blah 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 where sometimes you go, you know what, man, I hurt. I'm nervous. I had a bad sleep. I'm tired today. I'm really nervous because I respect all of you, you know, and just take this humanity into it. The world is, is craving that and it develops human connection by being humble, human, hum, again, to bring us back down to earth, you know, and just if you operate from that perspective with authenticity, your relationships change overnight. Noted. Um. Wow, there's a lot, a lot to process there. Um, so I was thinking, what's interesting about the fear of also being seen is that's exactly what we need. And what you mentioned about striving for perfection or feeling like we're being judged on a perfect, uh, like uh, being judged for perfection, that's really only like measured with what we understand. And the best parts about life are discovering what we don't know. And so you yeah. basically eliminate the possibility of discovery, or at least like diminish it. I think by holding someone to like a, some sort of, you know, metric where they have to meet a certain, like you have to be, like you say, perfect. What do you think about that? Yeah. I mean, you know, if you're looking at something to be perfect, you're going to set your stand, like a perfectionist is a good example. You're going to set your standards so high, knowing that you can never reach them only to confirm that you're not enough, which is why you became a perfectionist in the first place. Rather than allow for slippage, we're actually more defined by failure than we are by successes. It's like this will be one that like everyone will be relating to. You can be early five years every day in a row, but you'll be defined by the one day right. you, you're late. You right. know, so we're inherently geared to negativity. So when you look at negative and positive from that perspective, you realize that everyone makes mistakes. And when you're defined by your own failures, you'll define yourself by failure because that's what you've learned before. So the whole of I'm not being seen, not being heard is back from childhood. And the program, it'll probably rattle a few people, is if you sit in it and feel it and say, I don't matter to myself, I don't matter is a very powerful program where I'm not seen and not heard is going to be the behavioral compensation for the fact I feel like I don't matter. Then how can I influence the world of matter if I'm in a relationship with I don't matter? So then all I can see in the world is, well, I can do 50 things right and the one thing wrong. And the one thing wrong is what's going to be reflected back because I feel like I don't matter. And that's just going to show up everywhere until I see it, which is not even that I matter or I don't matter. It's that things are just the way that they are, regardless of the way that I think that they should be. You're dropping bombs, Jag. Um, okay. I, I could talk to you for another hour, but I just probably wind this down. What, where can people like see more of you? Where would you like to point us? Instagram's probably the best, which is pure Jaguar, P-U-R-E, Jaguar as it's spelt. Um, I give away heaps of free stuff on there, like insights and, you know, teachings and things like that. Um, so that'd be the best place. And if you vibe with my work, then maybe we could work together. Okay. Thank you so much for sharing with us today. It was really fascinating. Thank you so much, man. I really enjoyed it. Your questioning was great. I enjoyed it. Thanks.